Welcome to Verse by Verse. I'm Clinton DeFrance. I appreciate all of our listeners, and I'd love to hear from you if you have questions, comments, or anything else to share. Please feel free to write me at vbvpodcast at gmail.com. The kingdom is spreading, oh, tell ye the story, God's banner exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea. Today we're going to be studying Acts 18, verses 24 through 28. Acts 18, beginning in verse 24. Now a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he desired to cross to Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. For he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. Our last study saw the conclusion of Paul's second missionary journey, his return to Antioch to report on the work, with a brief visit to Jerusalem, to report on the success of their letter among the Gentile believers, then his embarking on the third missionary journey, beginning with another visit to the congregations in Galatia, most likely to see how effective his epistle to them had been. During this same time, a new congregation was established in Ephesus. Paul came here with Priscilla and Aquila after leaving Achaia, and shortly after the work began, Paul determined that he should return to Antioch before starting anything new. He made a conditional promise to visit the people there again and labor among them, God willing, and left his new friends in the able care of Aquila and Priscilla until the occasion when he might return. Picking up in Acts 18 verse 24, we receive a glimpse into their ministry in Ephesus before we return to the labors of Paul. And we are also introduced to another important figure from the early history of the church with one of the most unusual conversion accounts in the book of Acts. Verse 24. Now a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. Four especially noteworthy facts are given about Apollos. First, he was Jewish. And second, he was born at Alexandria, or perhaps more clearly stated, an Alexandrian by birth, as in the New American Standard Version. This would mean that he was a Hellenist, but much more than that. Alexandria was a Mediterranean seaport in Egypt about 12 miles inland from the mouth of the Nile River. It was established by and named after Alexander the Great in 332 B.C., it has a storied history to a legendary degree. Here was the lighthouse of Pharos Island, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. There was also the magnificent library that was reported to contain over 500,000 volumes of the greatest and most important writings from across the known world, and this before the existence of the printing press. 
It's almost certain that the efforts to translate the Old Testament into Greek began here. The legend says that 70 or 72, it's disputed, Jewish scholars were commissioned to the project by King Ptolemy Philadelphus II, which may have some basis in reality, but has also been embellished with some later fantastic claims to insinuate that what they produced was inspired by God. That is not worthy of acceptance, but what is incontestable is that Alexandria became a major center of Jewish learning, which assisted in the light of heaven being more richly and broadly disseminated into the nations than ever before. A leading Jewish university was established there, which became renowned, perhaps infamous, for its promotion of the allegorical method of interpreting the scripture. But all the same, the scripture was taught and studied there with tremendous zeal, and a flourishing Jewish community grew up in the city that lasted for many centuries. It was likely here that Joseph and Mary lived with the child Jesus while they were hiding from Herod. We do not know how old Apollos was, but it is possible that he lived in the same community as Jesus himself when the two were just boys. Apollos was not merely born here, but he was given an Alexandrian upbringing in a well-established Alexandrian family. When Luke describes him as an eloquent man, the meaning may refer to his education or his abilities as an orator or to a combination of both. McGarvey notes that skill in communication requires certain natural gifts, but these gifts can only reach their highest employment if they're cultivated by good character and good culture. Apollos seems to have been blessed with the former and certainly would have received the latter. Then Luke says he was mighty in the scriptures. First, we might note that this testifies to the existence of a canon of Hebrew sacred texts that was universally recognized by the Jewish people from Judea to Egypt, whether Hellenist or Hebrew. Luke does not speak of some scriptures or their scriptures, but the scriptures. Apollos was mighty or well-versed so as to be competent in his use of those writings. This almost certainly implies that he was literate. Now, there's significant debate about the literacy rates among Jews at that point in history. Many scholars place it at less than 3% of the population. However, some scholars argue that the data supports more than 20% of the population of at least some of the Hellenistic cities being functionally literate. Alexandria certainly would have been able to claim that kind of high rate if it was higher than usual. But certainly the testimonies of Jewish life contained in the New Testament indicate that even Jewish villagers like Jesus could read Luke 4.16 and that at least some of them were able to critically search the scriptures to evaluate the veracity of the things they heard taught, Acts 17 verse 11. Yet however common literacy was at the time and in that place, Modern culture demonstrates that there is a great difference between knowing how to read and making use of the skill. Apollos was a man who had dedicated his life to the careful study of the written Word of God and had become intimately familiar with its teachings. No doubt this prepared him to receive the instruction that Luke mentions in verse 25. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately 
the things of the Lord. Based on Luke's consistent usage of the word Lord, or the title, the Lord, it would be best to take this term as a reference to Jesus rather than Yahweh in general. As a Jew, and especially a man who is mighty in the scripture, we would naturally expect him to know the things of Yahweh. But Apollos had a more than a basic Jewish understanding of who God was. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord. It's noteworthy that the phrase, the way of the Lord, was used by the prophet Isaiah to describe the teaching of John the baptizer, Isaiah 40 and verse 3, specifically in regard to his work in preparing the Jews for the coming of Messiah. Further, the better manuscripts plainly state here that Apollos spoke and taught accurately the things of Jesus. So Apollos knew about Jesus, but what did he know? We can safely assume that he knew the major details of Jesus' life, ministry, miracles, and teachings. This would not be terribly surprising even for a man from North Africa because the Gospels testify that the report concerning Jesus spread all over the country and by the end of his life even Greeks were wanting to meet him because of his reputation, John 12, 20, and 21. We should even grant that Apollos believed that Jesus was the Messiah, perhaps even recognizing him as the divine son, and knew about his death and resurrection. Based on the amount of time that had elapsed since those events, when this incident takes place, it's difficult to imagine that Apollos would not have heard about these most important details. All of that would have made Apollos a great preacher. But Luke adds that he was fervent in spirit zealous and passionate because of his deep convictions regarding Jesus, and what he knew and taught was accurate, though, Luke adds, interrupting the praise, he knew only the baptism of John. The baptism of John refers to the water immersion preached and practiced by John, who was called the baptizer. In order to prepare for the coming of Jesus and to identify him to Israel, this according to Mark 1, 1 through 8, and John 1, 30 through 34. John's ministry was one of transition from the old system to the new, but it belonged to the old, and John announced that when Messiah began his ministry, John's work would begin to decrease and the Messiah's would increase until John's had passed away. John 3, verse 30. John often described this transition by saying that while he baptized with water for repentance, the Messiah would baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire, Matthew 10, verse 11. In the late chapters of the Gospels and the early chapters of Acts, we discover that Jesus, after his resurrection, instituted his own baptism in water, and he commanded that all nations submit to it in order to have their sins forgiven. Mark 16, 15-16, Matthew 28, 19. Additionally, on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after his resurrection, Jesus administered the baptism with the Holy Spirit to the apostles in Jerusalem, and thus signified that his kingdom and the glorious reign over the earth had been inaugurated. The old system was finished and the new had begun, and this meant that John's baptism of preparation was abrogated and replaced with Jesus' baptism of participation. 
Evidently, Apollos did not know that. He did not know what had happened on the day of Pentecost. He did not know that the Holy Spirit had been given and that the Messianic age was thus fully initiated. All the same, what he knew was to him good news worth sharing with his people. So, verse 26 says, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. Apollos' message might have been more palatable to the Jews than the full Christian message was, although we do not know precisely what he said. We know that John was actually more popular among the Jews than Jesus. And if Apollos did not know that the Messianic age had begun, then he almost certainly would not have been suggesting that Gentiles should be accepted or that the law of Moses had been abrogated, these being truths that were difficult even for those who had witnessed the day of Pentecost. However, there were some in the synagogue who knew even better than Apollos. Verse 26 continues, When Aquila and Priscilla heard him, evidently like Paul, they used the synagogue as an evangelistic center. In a moment, we'll find that a congregation already existed, evidently independent of the synagogue, but the Christians are continuing to visit the synagogue and to avail themselves of opportunities to share the message of Christ. And we recall that the synagogue gave many such opportunities. In addition to the custom of inviting learned men to offer a word of exhortation or instruction from the reading that day, there was an opportunity for those present to ask questions and even debate against the teachings if they felt it was necessary. However, in this case, the Christians chose not to take this approach. Rather, Luke says, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. There are several things to note here. First, we should note that neither Luke nor Aquila and Priscilla treated Apollos as a false teacher. It is true that he taught something false, or at least deficient, and it was not an inconsequential thing. As we will see in the next study, it was so significant that it impacted the validity of the baptism of those who accepted it. We do not have here evidence that early Christians divided the teachings of Jesus into lists of essential and non-essential. Yet all the same, the biblical description of a false teacher is more than simply a person who is ignorant or wrong about a certain proposition, even one that others have decided should be labeled an essential. In 2 Peter 2 verses 1 through 3, the Bible says, But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you. Note this. False teachers are paralleled to false prophets. Now, no one was accidentally a false prophet. False prophets were liars who claimed to have had an experience with God that never happened. In the same way, the implication is that no one can accidentally be a false teacher. These people are a kind who claim to be teaching the will of Christ or of God in order to appeal to those who love Christ or God, but in their hearts they know that what they're saying is not really from Christ or God at all. Peter continues, who will secretly bring in destructive divisions. Secretly supports our previous observation. These people know that they are doing evil. They're trying to hide it. They're trying to masquerade themselves, and there is no limit 
to their willingness to compromise truth for their own purposes. Luke says, even to the point of denying the Lord who bought them, and they bring on themselves swift destruction. And many who follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed, by covetousness they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. So false teachers are motivated by covetousness. That is, they use the gospel as a means of personal financial gain. This is not talking about people who were supported for their labors for Christ. This is talking about those who use the name of Christ to deceive those who love him into giving them their money when in fact they are not servants of Christ at all. Peter goes on to say that they live according to the lust of the flesh. And Jude, in a parallel discussion to this one in 2 Peter 2, says that they turn the grace of God into lewdness, Jude 4. That is, they use the message of Christ's grace to justify their immorality and rebellion against God's express will. Peter further says they despise authority and speak evil of powers in the presumptuous way putting the authority in themselves rather than in God or the Lord Jesus. In other words, false teachers are hypocrites who dress up fleshly lust and greed and pride to make it look like the gospel for the purpose of elevating themselves, even if it means destroying souls and rending the body of Christ into pieces. Now, such people do exist, and we can know them by their fruits, but none of this describes Apollos, and we are challenged by this account to be charitable, as Priscilla and Aquila were, and not to dole out accusations of being a false teacher or a false prophet lightly or quickly. Someone can disagree with us and not necessarily be wrong. We may be wrong because all of us are ignorant about something and perhaps even deceived. And if we are, and if we are honest people, then we do not know what we are ignorant of or deceived about. Surely we would all be gracious to ourselves and acknowledge this is true, but in the same way we are called to be gracious to others. A man can be wrong and still be honest, God-fearing, and truth-seeking. The ancient church regarded such people differently from rebels and evil or corrupt people, and they treated them differently. The Bible says that a true rebel or false teacher or divisive person should be rebuked in the presence of all, so that all may fear, 1 Timothy 5.20. But when Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took Apollos aside privately, and not to rebuke him sharply, but rather they explained to him the way of God more accurately. And by this charitable instruction, Apollos was converted to a more accurate knowledge and more accurate service to Christ. The expression, they took him aside, is often translated, they took him into their home. This may be a literal description of the setting where the discussion took place, but it seems more likely to be a form of an idiomatic expression used several times in the New Testament to describe intimate, friendly, conversational, personal interactions. In Acts 2.46, we find that the first believers spent their time eating together and associating from house to house, that is, in small personal groups, rather than merely in the public assembly of the church, where intimate conversations could take place. 
In Acts 20 and 20, Paul says that he ministered in Ephesus after taking over the work from Priscilla and Aquila in two ways, publicly and from house to house. This seems to be making a contrast between his teaching in the synagogue and the Christian assemblies and his teaching in the more familial settings or in private, as one translation says here. In this context, it seems that this setting was chosen primarily for Apollos' sake, out of respect for him and in recognition of his character for the reasons we've just discussed. However, it is noteworthy that Luke says in this setting he was instructed by both Aquila and Priscilla. Remember that Priscilla is the wife of Aquila. In passages like 1 Timothy 2, 11-13 and 1 Corinthians 14, 33-35, we learn that Christian women are not to be teachers in the assembly of the church. In fact, Paul says they're not even permitted by God to ask questions in that context. Yet Paul says that a woman may ask her husband at home, 1 Corinthians 14.35. Now, if we're correct in our observations about the phrase house to house, then asking her husband at home would simply mean to ask a qualified person in an appropriate context, which would exclude public assemblies like the synagogue or the church. However, here in Acts 18, we find Priscilla not merely asking questions, but giving an explanation, or to put it another way, teaching. And note that she is teaching a man, and not just any man, a believing man who was also a highly learned preacher. And she was teaching him theology. Thus we learn that in this setting, in which Paul and the Holy Spirit suppose Christians will often find themselves, the prohibition against women teachers does not apply. In fact, this is the place where women are commanded to be involved in the conversation and even teaching if they are so gifted. Returning to Acts 18.27, And when he desired to cross to Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. The brethren here would refer to the congregation in Ephesus with whom Aquila and Priscilla had been working. Luke makes no clear comment, but the implication is that Apollos received the truth with gladness and fervent acceptance. Here is another noble example worth emulating. One may be talented and knowledgeable, but those virtues will not be worth much in the end if he or she is not also teachable. Having learned the truth, Apollos joined himself to the body of Christ and sought to serve its interests. Likely, he learned about the congregation in Corinth, and he desired to serve them, as we discover he did in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 6. But we learn that while the early Christians were charitable, they were also discerning. In order for Apollos to receive, uh, to be received, I should say, by the churches in Corinth, it would be necessary that he either proved himself among them or carried the endorsement of others who already had. In this case, the church at Ephesus wrote him a letter of recommendation. Charity does not mean open fellowship. It means thoughtful consideration of each case and customizing our response in kind. When he arrived in Greece, Luke says that Apollos greatly helped those who had believed through grace. Luke always looks for occasions to highlight the gospel. Just as Christ and Christ's people had been gracious to Apollos, so had Christ been gracious to all who had ever come to him. Christians love one another 
and love others as Christ has loved us. We seek to teach and help others because God sought us that he might help us as well. It is noteworthy that Luke tells us the way Apollo served in Achaia. He vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. This, I think, supports our conclusions. Not all people are like Apollos, but some are. There are honest, sincere people searching for the truth, and there are stubborn, rebellious people who do not love the truth and prefer a lie. Only by going into all the world and preaching the gospel to every creature can we allow the word of God to make the distinction clear. To the hungry, Jesus comes with the bread of life, and to the hardened, he comes with the fire of judgment. From all the dark places of earth's heathen races, oh, see how the thick shadows fly. The voice of salvation awakes every nation. Come over and help us, they cry. The kingdom is spreading, oh, tell ye the story. God's better exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea. With praising and singing and jubilant ringing, their arms of rebellion cast down. At last every nation, the Lord of salvation, with glory their effort shall crown. The kingdom is spreading, oh, tell ye the story, God's banner exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea.